You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric, and by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. And Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. Have you ever wondered how ordinary climbers put together an expedition that results in a new route in the Himalaya? Well, listen on. Our guests are Ethan Berman and Martin Van Haren, who both live in Alberta, Canada. The two have done some impressive ascents and expeditions. Ethan was our guest on episode 34 of The Cutting Edge, describing a new route on Mount Robeson. Martin works as an alpine guide. Obviously, these guys are highly skilled alpinists. But neither of them is a pro climber, and neither had ever done an expedition to the greater ranges. So, when these two succeeded on the first ascent of the northeast face of Concarpo in Nepal in early November, I decided to ask them on the show, partly to talk about their beautiful new route up this rarely climbed 6,600-meter peak, but also to tell us how they planned and pulled off their very first Himalayan expedition. They've got lots of great advice, but no matter how carefully you plan, a trip like this is going to throw you some curveballs, and it's how you handle those that often makes the difference. As you'll hear, these guys handled them brilliantly. I hope you enjoy the show. Ethan, Martin, uh, welcome to The Cutting Edge. Uh, Ethan, you're an American who has lived in India and Thailand and I guess now lives in Canada. And Martin, you're originally from the Netherlands. How did you two end up becoming climbing partners in Canada? Well, um, I've been living in Canada for five or six years now. I came initially for graduate school in Vancouver, which was kind of my pathway to being allowed to stay in Canada. And so it's really easy to go to school and then to stay on. And so I've been working and living in Canada since. And when I moved to Vancouver, I was very desperate to find ways to go winter climbing because it's often quite challenging on the coast. And so I'd spend all my available school breaks and things like that coming to the Rockies because it's a little bit more reliable. And so... That's where I met Martin, who had already been living here for some time. How long have you lived in Canada, Martin? Uh, we've been in Canada for 14 years now. So it's, right. been, uh, it's been a little while. Um, yeah, initially moved to Ontario with my parents and my sister. Um, went to university there at Waterloo and then came west on an ice climbing trip. And um, yeah, basically 
just got enthralled by the mountains and realized you could be a mountain guide in Western Canada and make a living and a career. Um, so yeah, pretty quickly after that trip, the next summer, we, uh, my wife and I moved to uh, Canmore area and then, um, yeah, spent some time living there a couple of years in Calgary and then back in Canmore. And um, yeah, I guess at a, I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner at Jim Alzinga's uh, place where, uh, where I met Ethan. And um, I think pretty much right away, we made some climb, some uh, climbing plans there and um, went up on Mount Storm um, probably that week. Uh, <laughs> and that was, uh, yeah, pretty quickly figured out that we were, uh, yeah, we make, we make a good team and see eye to eye on this stuff. So yeah, that was a good trip too. And I know you've done at least one huge trip together, uh, to, uh, Mount Logan area, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but you had never gone and climbed either alone or together in the big mountains of Asia. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think, you know, both of us had been, uh, you know, obviously reading all the journals and, and, you know, reading and looking at all the, the beautiful peaks uh, out there and yeah, of course, dreaming about, um, uh, taking a trip there, but had never gone. Well, I want to get into some of the nitty gritty about planning and executing your first expedition to the Himalaya. But, but first, let's just talk about the climb itself. What is the name of the mountain you climbed and where is it in Nepal? Um, the peak is called Kangkarpo. It's gone by other names in the past, such as Ripi Moshar and um, even some other things, looking back at some, some articles from like the 1950s. It is just un. It is six thousand six hundred forty-six meters. Um, sorry, I don't know what that is in feet. It is. It's kind of in an interesting location. It is accessible from both the Rawaling Valley, which is just um, west of kind of the general Kumbu zone, but it's right on the border of that valley and another valley um, to the north. And so that is a less explored valley. It's called the Chuli Valley. And that's kind of the same way that you would go to access Choyu or Lunagri from Nepal or something like that. Hmm. So the peak had been previously climbed um, a handful of times from, the, from either Tibet or from the Rawaling Valley. But we were the first party to really explore accessing it and climbing it from the northern side. And was that because you had the northeast face in mind uh, all along? Um, and had the northeast face been attempted before? Um, yeah, it was because we had that side of the mountain in mind. I don't believe it had been a- attempted from that side before, but we did get a really good tip off from another American climber, Chris Wright who actually won some in American Alpine Club grant to go try the mountain from that side with Scott Adamson back in either 2013 or 2014. And they didn't end up going there. And they made last minute changes and went to the Lunog Valley um, with another American team and did some really cool routes in that area. And Chris essentially emailed me and said, hey, this is here. I'm not going back. Here's what I know if you're interested to do that. So um, it looked interesting. And I thought if those guys were 
had been there and thought that it looked like a cool place to visit, it was probably worthy of of a trip. Wow. That's great to have that inside tip. Um, how long were you planning to be in the mountains? I guess Kathmandu to Kathmandu. Um, yeah, it was about uh, six weeks um, all said and done and um, six and a half weeks. And um, yeah, we spent the first uh, half or the first part of our trip, I should say, um, doing uh, the three passes trek. And um, yeah, with my, my wife, uh, Lynn and um, Andrea. And uh, yeah, the four of us basically uh, yeah had a great opportunity uh, to check out the Kumbu and and visit um, you know a bunch of different valleys uh, on our on our first trip there and yeah it was really nice because you know kind of once you get into base camp you really only get to see that that ten kilometer stretch between you know <laughs> your mountain and the camp and so it was really nice to um, yeah walk around unencumbered by all the the kit and and really get to know the Kumbu a little bit. And it, and it sounds like you had some some challenges before you even got to base camp. There's some medical issues. Um, am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's spot on. Um, yeah, kind of on the on the trekking portion. Um, you know, as we got higher, I started having some tooth pain, and um, that basically just got worse and worse the higher we went. So, yeah, I had a pretty miserable night at the lodge at 4,600 meters, and then kind of realized that I probably should go down and get that checked out. And um, so the next day when the crew went up and over uh, Chola Pass, um, I had hiked back out to Namche in a day. And um, turns out there is the world's highest dental clinic right in Namche. Oh, so no. I got intimately familiar with uh, <laughs> with that clinic. Yeah. Oh, my God. What was wrong with you? Uh, so I had a, I had a tooth infection. Um, so that's kind of what was, what was swelling up as we were going higher and, um, oh. yeah, so got some antibiotics and, um, hung out for a day or two and then kind of met up with everybody, uh, on kind of the tail end of the loop there. Um, and then we kind of all came back to Namche, but, um, yeah, once we all were back in Namche, I actually ended up going back to the dentist uh, a whole bunch to kind of, uh, yeah, get that dealt with and make sure that it wasn't going to be a problem later on in the expedition basically uh was it uh no it um it ended up being totally fine so uh you know it's not the clinic is not necessarily maybe what you'd imagine for a, a third world country dental clinic uh, it's uh you know pretty well funded and they've mm. got modern equipment there and and um you know well well educated dentists so uh no they did a great job um oh that's getting great me, getting me sorted and unfortunately it took like seven visits or something like that over three days to, <laughs> to get it all dealt with. But, um, yeah, so definitely, uh, get your teeth checked before you go on a high altitude expedition. Oh, man. Did the altitude, uh, aggravate it? Is that your understanding? Yeah, that's kind of what, what we figured out is just, you know, as you're going higher, everything swells up and yeah, that just, uh, made it that much more painful. And I didn't even, I didn't know at all that I, that I had anything, um, going on there at all before we went on the trip so it was really just at altitude that you know the first day it's kind of like oh i kind of have a bit of a toothache and the next day it was like oh wow i like really have a toothache now oh man so, yeah that was our start to the trip wow and then didn't you both get the flu or something you know right as you arrived at base camp yeah we definitely had some other issues with um sickness in general 
it's funny. I was having coffee with Steve Swenson this summer in Squamish and telling him about our plan and how we were going to go trekking first and it would be a great way to acclimatize and get a feel for the area. And he just looked at me and he said, that's a terrible idea. You're going to get sick. Wow. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong. Um, so thankfully, nobody had any, any bad um, stomach issues. But trekking around these tea houses in the Kumbu, I mean, you're just exposed to a lot of other people in these dark and kind of wood stove heated restaurants every night. And so, yeah, we both just got a little bit of something. And I think Martin got hit a bit harder after his round of antibiotics and 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 a epic seven visit foray to the dentist so it was definitely one of those things where we started acclimatizing and martin like had a fever and just couldn't stop coughing and then we bailed back to base camp and base camp was at 4900 meters which is not a great place to recover from from being sick so we were it was definitely something where we thought this could just be one of those trips where you get sick and, and that's kind of the end of it. Um, hmm. But somehow we did recover. And I think Martin was really persistent and determined to kind of keep, keep hammering away at it. Um, and so, yeah, I think we were rewarded for kind of sticking with it. How much time did it cost you, do you think, with these different things, or, or not at all? You had to acclimatize anyway. Yeah, well, the, the dental stuff at the beginning didn't end up costing us any time because it kind of just ate away from the trekking portion of our trip before we went to base camp. Um, and we had about three and a half weeks in base camp total. Hmm. And so it really took a hit out of our kind of first week or 10 days there, which meant that we were already like midway through our second week in base camp and still needed to do like a four to five day acclimatization before we felt like we could go, go climb our objective or go try it. So it, it ate away enough that if the weather wasn't cooperating or if anything else really went wrong, I think we would have, we would have ran out of time there. Um, hmm. Did you feel 100% by the time you got on the climb, Martin? Uh, I think at that point, we felt I felt definitely the best I'd felt at base camp at that <laughs> point in time, which wasn't saying a whole lot. Um, strangely, I was really coughing a lot in base camp, and that seemed to kind of go away <laughs> as we got higher, which, you know, that's, I think, usually the opposite of what uh, what happens. And so... Yeah, I think by the time we kind of woke up below the face, I was definitely feeling, uh, yeah, a lot better. For sure. Nice. So you got, uh, I guess you sort of pushed it right to the end of your, your time window for being at base camp, but eventually you got up there and, and, and did the climb. Um, why don't you just quickly sort of walk us through the climb itself? I mean, how long did it take and what were the main challenges? And did you have good bivouacs or terrible bivouacs? How, how did it go? Yeah, so um, the base of the face, the northeast face of Concarpo there, um, it's about four hours, four and a half hour walk from uh, from our base camp. Um, and so that was kind of the same route that we've been taking um, to kind of where we were climatizing. And so we had a pretty good understanding of that zone. Uh, and then actually on this, our second acclimatization trip, uh, we had actually climbed the bottom uh, snow face mm. of, uh, of our route. And so, um, you know, just 
mostly climbing in in North America. We're not really used to, you know, going and scoping out the bottom of any route for that matter, really. You might go check out the approach, but um, yeah, at first it was a bit of a, an odd decision, it seemed, but then once we got on it, it uh, yeah, we quickly realized how much value there was in kind of uh, assessing the snow conditions. And so we had actually been up to about 4,900 meters, or 5,900 meters, sorry, and uh, and spent a night there on the face. So yeah, we kind of did have those uh, that first um, bivy ledge dug out, and yeah, we kind of knew where we were going to stay. So, so you blew yeah, the, the on, day, you blew the onsite. <laughs> that's right, we blew the alpine onsite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we um, yeah, the first day we we hiked to the base of the mountain and with um, Numgill, um, our camp manager, base camp manager, and um, yeah, across the glacier, and then had a bivy below the face, and then um, the next morning we. I decided to wait till the sun was mostly off um, the face. It did catch a couple hours of sunlight. So yeah, around two, two, 10.30, we started climbing up and um, climbed the lower snow face, kind of back to our back to our bivy ledge that we'd already uh, dug out. And then, um, yeah, spent a good night there. And the next morning, we um, had a little bit more s- snow climbing to do. Um, and then uh, we pulled out the rope for... This long leftward traverse, which, um, you know, I guess ended up being kind of one of the one of the cruxes of the route, um, ended up being quite a bit steeper and um, a little bit more run out than we'd thought before. And um, you know, Ethan kind of kept uh, kept climbing basically till we'd made the traverse and, and build an anchor at the far side. And um, yeah, from there we kind of followed the the line up through uh, a little bit of mixed ground and then kind of got below the first big uh, cliff band. And we kind of found a a gully system or or a chimney system kind of through that big rock band. And we got to the base of it. And then all of a sudden to our left, there was a a ton of waterfall ice. And um, yeah, we kind of opted to to climb that. And that went on for about four or five pitches. Um, And, uh, you know, when climbing grade three is kind of hard on you at that altitude you we kind of quickly realized how tough it would have been to um yeah be clearing snow mushrooms and, and doing possibly tricky mixed climbing through that other cleft and yeah kind of right as the light the sun was setting we uh we luckily found a, a small rock overhang with a big snow mushroom underneath it and um yeah that was going to be our our high camp for the next two nights as it turned out then uh yeah the next morning we kind of left all the sleeping kit um at the bivy ledge and light packs to uh, to the summit. So Ethan uh, kind of led the rope all the way up uh, up there, and we kind of you know altered our line a little bit, and um, yeah, ended up kind of topping out right uh, on the summit glacier. Oh, great! Um, only about fifty meters elevation from the true summit, so we we're kind of swinging tools uh, right to sixty six hundred meters. Mm-hmm. And then did you descend the same way? Uh... That you'd uh, that you'd gone up, yeah. Kind of during the acclimatization, we essentially decided that we we're probably going to end up descending our route. Um, so we that same day from the summit, we descended back to our bivy at sixty three hundred meters, and um, we uh, we briefly brought up the idea of continuing down, but we were just pretty uh, pretty done by then, pretty wasted. So yeah, just popped the tent back up and just pretty much fell asleep. <laughs> 
so you're what three days going up and a day and a half coming down roughly yeah yeah exactly did the route pretty much match up with what you'd seen from below or in photos or were there surprises when you got up there yeah i think a little bit of both we we didn't really have a lot of information about that side of the mountain just a few faraway photos and so we were actually thinking we were going to climb one of the ridges on either side of the face because that was kind of the beta that Chris had given us. But we got there and the face just was the obvious kind of cool objective to climb and really exceeded any expectations that we had. And so I think we were really psyched for that, but we were a bit concerned because it was a very late monsoon in that in that in Nepal this year and so it was really it was like snowing and raining pretty hard until the middle of October and I think a lot of teams got shut down this fall because of bad snow conditions and bad weather if their trip was too early and so we were a bit concerned that maybe the conditions wouldn't be good or they the snow quality wouldn't be good enough to try something like that but actually, in the end, I think that the, that climbing the face after we had given it a couple of weeks to, to clear off um, was definitely the best option conditions wise, because I think the ridges in, in the whole area were just totally deep snow mm. wallowing and, and kind of like endless facets. So we ended up having really nice um, ice conditions that I think made the climb a lot of the pitches be a lot easier than they would have been otherwise, because the rock quality, although it was granite, it was quite compact and, and difficult to protect. So I think that allowed us to move pretty fast. Um, but the other thing, I think we made some really good decisions en route where we had kind of, you know, taken photos and picked out the line that we thought we were going to climb. And then halfway up, halfway up the face on that second day when we were kind of in the guts of, of some of the harder pitches, Martin opted to as he mentioned, kind of veer off from, from the gully that we thought we were going to climb and, and take this kind of easier ice passage. And we didn't really know where that was going to lead. So we didn't really know where we were going to sleep or, or, or what the upper face was going to be like in that area. So that was definitely a bit of a, of a surprise and kind of kept us on our toes. But in retrospect, I think if we had stuck to the original plan, we would have probably ended up bailing because um, I think the conditions would have been a bit too difficult. And I think it would have pushed us a bit further than we wanted to. Um, and so it ended up working really well. And we, we found this incredible high camp that required minimal digging. We were debating between bringing this carbon shovel or a snow hammock, but we decided we weren't going to bring both. Hmm. And we ended up bringing the shovel and, and that ended up working out really well. Um, and it was really classy kind of North Face, Snice, Neve, ice climbing all the way to the summit on the last day. And that was, that was really cool. The other thing about the conditions were it was really cold. Um, and I don't know if it's generally like that. I mean, we were, we were talking early November and windy. And so... We, we pretty much climbed the whole route in our puffy pants mm. and definitely spent a lot of time warming our toes and fingers and really trying to, to be on top of that. 
And the nice thing about being on the northeast face is, is first of all, we had, you know, an hour or two of sun in the morning, which was definitely a morale boost and kind of got us going. And the other thing is the the wind predominantly comes from the south. So we were mostly, although we were we were cold in the shade, we were mostly protected from the wind, which I think was possibly a bigger factor than than being in the shade. Hmm. So I think a lot of things kind of came together nicely to to make this happen, which was cool. You uh, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask is uh, you mentioned the late monsoon this year, and uh, I was going to ask when when you actually did the climb. What were the dates of the? I think it was November fourth to seventh, right? And it was literally you know we got back to base camp and and the yak showed up the next morning for us to leave. And I think that this is something that we, we on Logan too, we, we stayed in on the glacier on below Mount Logan for six weeks. And we were in Nepal for seven weeks for this trip. And I think a lot of people opt for shorter trips these days, which has a lot of merit for many reasons. But I think a lot of teams this year also maybe got a bit screwed because they didn't have enough time to let the conditions settle after the monsoon ended Mm -hmm. um, or have multiple attempts. And I think that was pretty key for us that we, we had that amount of time um, to kind of have this issue with sickness and still, still get a chance to climb. And, and it it was really the October 15th, the tap just shut off and it was, again, I don't know how characteristic this is, but it was, it was the most stable mountain weather I've ever seen anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, it was for a, an entire month, it was just blue skies, um, no precip, um, clouds building in the afternoon, but every morning was just completely clear the entire time we were in base camp. That gives you some confidence. Yeah. After a few messages from our sponsors, we'll dive into the details on planning an expedition like this, sharing a few of Ethan and Martin's ingredients for success. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear list to make sure they packed PolarTech. We love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa Boots simply more. Right. So, uh, nice work. 
I asked you guys on the show in part because this was your first trip to the greater ranges. And I think a lot of listeners will feel like I do, that it must seem overwhelming to plan an expedition like this. You know, how do you find information? Where do you buy food? How much is it going to all cost? What happens if something goes wrong? And I really wanted to spend a little time talking about that aspect of it from your your recent experience. And the first question I was going to ask you is if you had any mentor or mentors in, in planning this trip. And you answered that in part because uh, the climber, Chris Wright, told you about this specific objective. Um, but did Chris or other climbers sort of walk you through the logistics, uh, you know, what gear and clothing to bring for a North Face in Nepal, that kind of thing? Uh, who and how did they help you with doing your first trip? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because some of it is totally new. And, um, you know, some of this is also just based on our, our previous climbing experiences, right? And um, yeah, for sure, we have we have some friends and, and some of our mentors who've obviously climbed in Nepal. And um, yeah, definitely kind of um, gave us a heads up that, you know, November on a north face above 6,000 meters is probably going to be pretty chilly so that was good beta because it it was and then um you know i think a lot of the other planning also just comes from from doing other planning other trips and and you know like like our logan trip or or alaska so some of that for sure carries over um you know the other thing that chris wright provided us with was um uh uh, somebody who could uh, help us out based in Kathmandu, uh which is saudi wan from climb high himalayas um and he was a huge help and and instrumental in kind of putting together all the pieces um of this i uh especially with the permits but also just all the other logistics i have no idea how you would do it without having a having a fixer in Kathmandu. it would be very tricky especially um with permits and government things is that a is that a trekking agency that he runs yeah yeah exactly and and he's outfitted um chris wright's trip and um joe poirier and uh david gottlieb mm-hmm. yeah he's uh he kind of does the trekking and and the climbing expeditions as well okay yeah i'd like to come back to that but i also i wanted to ask you too about i mean we talked a little bit about how you guys sort of hooked up as climbing partners and obviously i mean it's almost a cliche but that doesn't make it less true i mean how crucial is a good partnership for something like this um, especially when you're just a two-person team out there how do you sort of assess, oh, I know this is the right person, and and um, how, how do you have the confidence? How do you know you have the right partner, I guess? All right. Yeah, well, let's, mean... talk, let's talk a little bit about our bromance here. <laughs> let's do it, man. Um, no, but it's, it's, you're right. Like it, it, you know, you can have the, the best logistics and the tastiest food, but if, if your partnership doesn't line up, of course, there's no, there's hardly any point. You know, I think both Ethan and I are pretty laid back most of the time. So when, you know, there's there's hiccups in, you know, the the pre-planning or during the trip or during the climb, you know, I think we're pretty good at kind of, you know, just taking it easy and assessing it out and kind of um, making, it, making it work. You know, I think maybe Ethan is a little bit more driven than I am. Sometimes I'm a little bit too laid back, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a I think it's a good balance. Yeah, yeah I think. A good climbing partner doesn't necessarily make a good expedition partner. And 
it's really important to have both on a long trip like this. And I think that's kind of the personality side that Martin touched on. Just there is so much downtime in, in base camp and time away from climbing that I think it's really important to, to go with people that you know that are going to be able to handle that well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like there, there are days in base camp that, that you're just sleeping all day and, and really not doing anything. And it's the sun goes down at 3 PM and you're, you're getting into your sleeping bag. because It's really <laughs> cold, even at 4,900 meters. And so I think that's really important having that kind of chill mentality and just being able to wait things out. Um, but I, but I think there's also a, a more technical thing, um, a more technical side of the partnership regarding the logistics and planning and that's um i i found that it's really important to have a teammate or teammates who are involved in the planning process and possibly have different strengths in that regard and i see myself i think i'm i operate at, at more of a higher level i i have a lot of ideas i have have a lot of visions for different routes and different places to visit um but when it comes to packing bars and dehydrated meals into a duffel bag I'm not as good as knowing how much of that stuff to bring. And Martin is really good at that. So I think that's something that I really appreciate as well as, is I can be organizing these higher level logistics and I'm just like, Hey, Martin, can you sort out the food? Mm -hmm. And I know that he's going to have a spreadsheet with exactly the amount of food that we need Hmm. and possibly too much, which (laughs) is usually a good problem to have. (laughs) How how far ahead did you start planning this specific trip? I mean, when did you, I don't know. When did you buy plane tickets? That kind of thing. I think we bought plane tickets around July. Mm-hmm. So maybe fairly late, but we had been, I, I had considered going to climb this peak quite a, like three years ago, possibly. Oh, okay. And kind of like when COVID was starting up and, and never ended up going. So it was an idea that I had in mind and I knew just from, talking with others that um, getting permits for Nepal and, and those kind of like bureaucratic logistics are, are easier than in other places in the Himalaya. So you can kind of assume that those types of things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even if you're, you know, talking two or three months out as opposed to like six months to a year. So, so what sort of permits do you need for climbing this specific peak? So um, for anything over um, 6,500 meters, um, it kind of automatically goes to the Ministry of Tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are kind of uh, classic peak permits, I guess. Um, There's some other, there's another list of mountains that um, the Nepali government calls trekking peaks, Mm -hmm. uh, which are not necessarily what you and I might think of as trekking peaks. Some of those are still technical, um, but those are kind of the, you know, some of the classic pe- peaks people might have heard about, like Island Peak, Lobocha East, uh, Mara Peak. Um, so those are all kind of on that list. And those permits are a bit easier to get. And there's a bit more of a, a structure to it. Um, but uh, yeah, for, for these permits that uh, for Kankarpo, we, um, you know, for sure, Sadiwan had been working on those for, for weeks and um, in advance and visiting the ministry lots and kind of you know, making sure that um, everybody was on the same page, basically. And 
um, yeah, we definitely planned an, uh, an extra day or two in Kathmandu just to uh, go to the ministry and sign the documents, mm-hmm. um, meet our liaison officer, and uh, yeah, kind of get all the permits sorted that way. So he arranged, he, t- he took care of the arrangements in advance. Is that the way it works? You say, I want to go cr- climb this peak. Um, I'm going to hire you to take care of things in country. Um, can you please get the permits that we need or get the, the, the ball rolling? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, he kind of has all the, the relationships with the folks at the ministry and, um, yeah, just kind of, uh, you know, huge help of course, in, in getting that all sorted. Um, you know, especially when you're, I think when you're applying for a peak that is maybe a little bit off the beaten path, like, like ours, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was, uh, showing, showing some folks on the map where <laughs> right. Carpo even was, you know, right. they, uh, they, Definitely don't hand out permits for that very often. And, and you mentioned a liaison officer. Now that surprises me. Do you was that a person that actually came with you, or is this some sort of a something that happens in Kathmandu? Uh, yeah, that's that all just happened in Kathmandu. We uh, we met the dude out there at the office, and then we uh, saw him when we came back to Kathmandu. Uh-huh. So we were, uh, you know, adequately liaisoned. I would say. <laughs> And, and he was adequately liaisoned with quite a bit of money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I think this is something I, I think we came to the conclusion that you really couldn't get a permit for one of these peaks on your own without this on in-country support. And I don't know if that's something that's different in than in previous generations, but I think it's, it really would be difficult given the the paperwork and the money going into various people's pockets. Yeah. And I think you're even um, required to have a guide, quote unquote guide, even to go trekking now. I mean, it, 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 it is all very organized. Um, so there's the disadvantage that you have to pay people uh, to do this work, but the advantage that a lot of work gets done for you and it probably eases a lot of the concerns about getting that stuff done. Totally. It's definitely helps a lot with the logistics and, and kind of like getting a good base camp set up. And I think it's, it, I mean, it also has some good implications. Like in, in Namche Bazaar, you go and you pay a garbage fee and you have to like show back up with your garbage mm-hmm. and, and kind of do things like that. Um, and so I think, yeah, that, that allows you to focus a little bit more on, on kind of the climbing aspect and a little bit less on, on how you're going to get there. But I think, I think it's also important to note that it is good to kind of be on the ball about where you're supposed to be, what day and what's happening and to not completely rely on someone to, to have all these things figured out. So Hmm. I think it was important that we kind of had a little bit of extra money and we're asking a lot of questions and just really made sure that, that things were happening the way that we wanted them to happen. Um, cause I can imagine it being different if you were just totally hands off. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, the other feedback we got was, was just being kind of a bit more chill and of course, like friendly and gracious towards everyone helping you goes a long way because we got a lot of feedback about others who in the past had, had been more critical or more pushy. And, and I think that we having that, like, good working relationship and, and friendship with, with some of these folks, um, went a long way. And I think they were super, super appreciate, appreciative of, 
of kind of the way that we that we handled everything. Mm-hmm. And how big was the the crew that you trekked in, well, say to base camp with? Yeah, so um, on the flight out from from Kathmandu, we uh, we actually ended up taking a, a helicopter from from Kathmandu, and um, so kind of just the duffels that were uh, getting um, ported up to Namche, and um, there at a, at a lodge, we were able to kind of keep the the climbing equipment and make our trek, and then when we came back um, from Namche, um, the there was a yak train that came and uh, picked up all the all the kit and all the duffels, hmm. and uh, they went ahead with with Pemba Sherpa, the the person who, uh, who owns the yaks and and also happened to own the the last lodge uh, hmm. before our base camp. Um, so he went ahead with seven yaks and all our kit, and then um, Ethan uh, Namgil and Daba and I um, then hiked out to. Uh, Aria Lodge, which is uh, which is where they were staying, and then uh, the last day we were about six hours, six and a half hour hike um, into base camp um, with all the yaks, and um, you know, for for us coming from the west, that, I, I thought that was a super super cool <laughs> experience. Just kind of um, yeah, truly hiking up with the with the yaks and with the locals to to our uh, nice remote base camp, and then once uh, once Pemba left with the yaks at the end of the day, there we. Uh, didn't see another soul outside of uh, the four of us um, till till Pemba came back 26 days later. Wow. And so you spent a lot of time with those two guys as well. Um, that must have been a, was that a great experience? Yeah, it was, it was really great. Um, the Namgil had, and uh, his son, Natar, um, were actually with us on uh, the trek as well. And so, um, yeah, we ended up spending almost six and a half weeks with, uh, with Namgil and, uh yeah just such friendly people you know their uh, their english was definitely better than my nepali but there was still not a lot of communications in in that sense but um you know especially by the time we were going to base camp i thought i thought we really yeah we just really connected and, and saw eye to eye and and he kind of saw our attitude to to things and to life and and i think we saw his a little bit and um, you know what he what he lacked in in English skills, he made up for knowing all the logistics and knowing lots of people in the Kumbu and mm. yeah, just being so so helpful and attentive to to what we needed to to make this expedition a success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, yeah, we didn't meet Dawa till we were uh, we were in Namche, mm. um, but yeah, he was uh, also really uh, really great guy to to spend the month with and. Him and Namgil had actually uh, grown up in the same village just outside of Lukla. And so they had been friends since childhood. And yeah, it was, it was pretty cool to see those guys interact. Yeah. Nice. Now, thinking about planning again, there are some things that you have to buy once you're in Nepal, right? You can't bring a stove or stove fuel with you, for example. And of course, you have to buy a lot of food once you're there. Did you just talk to friends and think, uh, to, to, to learn? what things that you would have to bring with you and what things you would have to buy once you were there. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about going climbing in this part of Nepal is it's probably the most trafficked place in all of the Himalaya Mm -hmm. for, for tourism, um, for trekking and climbing. And so you can really get, get everything you want. I mean, we're sitting in Namche Bazaar at, at, 
3,500 meters drinking espressos out of a fancy <laughs> Italian machine. So, um, we, the, so we knew that we were going to be able to get everything we needed. I mean, you could literally show up with nothing. You could buy dehydrated food, whatever you wanted. But the way that we broke it down that I think would work well wherever you're going in the Himalayas to really bring all of your, your root food and the things that you hmm. specifically want, dehydrated meals, bars, gels, whatever else, anything special, and then buy all of the base camp food um, and gas locally. Mm -hmm. And so that was really easy logistically in that area. And we bought all of our base camp food in Namche itself. I think some, mm -hmm. some companies will, will hike it all from lower in and, and porter it up from the valley. And the other thing is we, I mean, we're both pretty easy about food and we, I think it's you you really just want to eat what what the locals eat because that's the better ingredients that are coming in and everything's a bit fresher and and simpler and I I think it worked out really well in that in that regard and we both felt pretty pretty good the food was good and and simple and and I think that kept us kept us healthy as well. You know it's funny I I've done two treks in Nepal and um I got really tired of the food after a while. Um, I not like like dal bot and things like that were great, but the things that they would try to sort of make Western food like pizza and stuff, uh, it really wore on me after a while. <laughs> and, and I, I, I got where I could only eat basically breakfast and lunch and I just couldn't touch the dinner, which really started to wear on you. But it sounds like you yeah, had a totally. good cook. <laughs> Yeah, we had a good cook, which of course is is a is a game changer. Um, I mean, you don't. One way that people can save costs is to is to not have a cook, right? right. Or to just get dropped off and and be self sufficient. But I think it was it was both such a such a fun experience to have those guys around and to get to know them and to spend time with them, and to have someone making amazing food. And and we, I mean, we thought the the food at base camp was better than any of the tea houses we stayed at. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think we lucked out in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we kept joking about how uh, how Dawa needed to just start his own restaurant in Lukla, <laughs> but everybody else had a business. Nice. I think the other thing too, like um, that, you know, in terms of that kind of planning, that you know, I definitely hadn't really thought about. And I don't think neither of us had um, was just the you know having good local connections like that to be able to to get a whole bunch of fresh veggies um hmm. out in base camp so uh, unbeknownst to us till we left namche basically was like oh yeah we're picking up like you know 70 bucks in potatoes at the last lodge we're going to or like okay sounds great <laughs> um you know again like if you didn't have somebody out there to to help you with that those kinds of logistics you would have never known that was an option or had delicious french fries in base camp mm -hmm. yeah. you know you mentioned the possibility of saving money by not having a cook um i know a lot of listeners are going to wonder you know what a trip like this costs i mean is it possible to give us kind of a rough breakdown of what you each spent yeah i think i think a rough estimate for what an expedition like this costs in country is probably around fifteen thousand us mm -hmm. and that was also a number that we got from another American team that, that was climbing on Lunagri that we met up with while we were there. And so I think you're looking at about that for all of the permitting and food and logistics in the country, and then as well as a, a flight to 
Nepal, which for us was probably around 1500 US. So I think we were probably in the like seven to 10,000 US range each. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's pretty expensive. I think um, an important thing if you want to go on these types of trips is to have a job and not be too much of a dirtbag. <laughs> <laughs> that was all in. So that included the trek that you did before your your trip, which obviously would have added some to the cost. Yeah. And we, having been on you know these types of trips in other parts of the world, we had most of the gear that we needed. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have to buy fancy tents or anything like that. We kind of had all of that. Um, and so, yeah, we, one thing is, is having a third or fourth partner drastically reduces those costs because most of those are fixed. The staff, um, the permit, um, all of those things. So how much was the permit itself for this peak? Um, the permit for the peak was $400, but the liaison officer is about $2,000. But you didn't have to buy so, uh, boots and uh, uh, expedition down suit for him, right? Yeah. So I think whether whether that person comes or not, it's probably going to be about the same cost mm -hmm. because because of the, those reasons. And I think a, a lot easier if you're able to work it out that they don't, because it's it's obvious it's obviously one less factor to deal with. So you did uh, buy. You did equip the person. We didn't equip them, but we we certainly paid them right. to <laughs> to equip <Okay>. them. <laughs> um, Were there surprises that added costs, uh, or did you sort of have a budget ahead of time and, and things sort of went the way you expected? Well, I think one of the things that we were initially planning for was um, to ha having another permit um, for the the mountain. Uh, beside Concarpo called Tagnari. And um, that pretty quickly started to add a lot of cost because, mm -hmm. um, well, basically, I, I think what happened is the ministry maybe saw an opportunity to charge us a little more. And so pretty quickly, an extra permit all of a sudden meant an extra L another LO officer. And um, yeah, just kind of a lot of those costs started oh. to double all of a sudden. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we so we tried to get three permits, and they said that we were going to have to pay for three separate liaison officers. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so we quickly said, "Okay, we'll just get one permit and see what happens." Right. <laughs> do you, having now done it, do you think there are ways you could have saved money, or do you think that it was money well spent? Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty on par. You know, I think maybe we would have brought a little bit more of some things, a little bit less of other things in terms of what we actually flew into the country. And um, I might consider like buying a little bit more kit in Kathmandu next time, like within the country. Um, but that's, that's about it in terms of like, you know, having, fo having folks help us with these kinds of logistics. And obviously you're, you're paying for those services too. I mean, some of, some of those and a lot of them were just invaluable. You mm -hmm. would have basically not been able to pull off the trip, I think. Um, without some of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest factor is just having a third person along. And it was definitely something that we had considered. And I think in the future, um, definitely will consider as well. But we just didn't have the right person for this trip. And we both decided that it would be better to just go the two of us than to try and find someone that we mm. weren't 
sure would would be a good fit for the team. Well, it could have gone wrong in another way too. If if one of you had gotten or stayed sick, uh, hadn't recovered yeah, well. Yeah, well, that's the other reason, right? There's a lot of benefits for for that cost being just one of them. Yeah. Now you uh, you have jobs, so that's uh, you're able to afford uh, trips to places. Did you get um, any grant money or outside funds, or did you just save up like people do for their vacations? Yeah, we um, we didn't get any grant funding for this trip, um, but we did receive a little bit of money from Arcteryx Alberta, which was super nice of them um, to support me for that. But um, that was a small percentage of the total cost, and and we mostly you know just saved up throughout the year and and went on vacation. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, we definitely. Got some support in terms of uh, in terms of equipment um, as well, so that was uh, that was really nice. But I think, um, yeah, just relying on on uh, your savings instead of relying on other people to to fund your trips is just way more likely that you're actually going to go because <laughs> I think uh, you know unless you're planning these kinds of trips years in advance, right? Um, yeah, if you're counting on 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 a brand or or another sponsor to um, to fund you for that it's uh yeah you might just not go right? hmm. so. yeah it's something that i've thought a lot about for sure and i mean when you when you see media about a lot of expeditions to the himalaya and different places you tend to see the people who are the few people who are getting their trips fully paid for and and have all these connections to different companies and to the to the media itself and i think most trips people are people are really just funding it themselves and i think when you think about if this is something that you want to continue to do in a long-term and sustainable way, I mean, the only, the only real sustainable way to, to do that is to make sure that you have the ability and the, and the funding to be able to, to do it yourself. And so I think that's, that's something that, that I think is important for kind of the longevity of going on these types of expeditions. Hmm. I mean, I suppose for a lot of people, the uh, the challenge would not be not necessarily raising the money, but getting the time off. Uh, it's a big chunk of time. And you have to have not only a job that makes you the kind of money that will allow you to go on a trip like this, but also the, the work flexibility to uh, take six, eight weeks off from work. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're both very fortunate that we have a lot of flexibility. Um I, I work as a as a guide uh, in the in the Rockies here, and, and Ethan is a, a data scientist, and so we we both have the opportunity to take contracts and, and take work and kind of um, yeah plan our our months as we uh, as we want to spend them basically, and so that um, yeah it just gives us a ton of flexibility. Kind of I mean, we we chatted a lot about um, you know the pros and cons about going on these trips for yeah extended periods of time, and and I think it really uh, you know, even with all the time that we had, we, it still came kind of down to the wire at the end there in terms of our timing, right? So we had the 26 days in base camp after acclimatizing a whole bunch before. And mm. yeah, we still basically needed all that time to to pull it off. And um, and the same thing out on Logan, you know, by like six weeks, we were, you know, we hadn't really climbed our, our main objective yet. And, you know, there was still an opportunity if we'd had more time to to, to go at it one more time. So, uh, but yeah, like you said, you definitely need the flexibility to, to do that. And 
I think especially in, in North America, that's not always uh, not always a given. No, and and also flexibility with with family and partners. Uh, you have to have very uh, uh, giving partners, uh, I think, to allow these kinds of trips. Um, so, how do you do it? Um, now, for for myself, you know, my wife Lynn is uh, like you said, very understanding and very generous in. Um, yeah, supporting me and encouraging me to to go on these trips. Um, you know, she she knows what um, you know that this is these are the the type of trips that I've been wanting to go on for a number of years now, and kind of finally uh, in a position to to do so, both you know financially and 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 in terms of skills too. You know, you don't want to necessarily jump into the deep end with big Himalayan peaks. You know. Um, and uh yeah i think we just have a, a really good understanding we spend a lot of time together when i'm when i am home and um yeah do try and go on you know one of these trips every once uh once or twice uh, every couple of years mm-hmm. yeah i think it's it's a long process and you really have to be embedded in it for a long period of time to make it happen i really see this expedition as the culmination of really making this the focus of my pursuits over the last 10 years, really developing the skills to be able to climb a mountain like this in a technical sense, and also setting up my life in a way that, that I'm able to afford this type of expedition, as well as um, make it work with, with family and relationships and life and and career as well. So Mm -hmm. there's obviously no, no one way that people make it happen, but I, I'm a strong believer that if there's something you're passionate about and want to do, that you just have to put it out there in the world. And mm-hmm. I think people, my experience has been um, employers and others have responded quite positively as long as I'm getting getting my things done. And and uh, you know, there, it can't hurt to ask. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So you said culmination of just 10 years of uh, building experience. Uh, you know, you had this great success on your first trip to uh, to Nepal. Are, are you hooked? Um, do you guys each think that you'll, are, are you already planning something else? There's, there's talks, there's talks. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think we're both pretty hooked. And I think we're, um, you know, even just the Logan trip for me, at least really, um, yeah, affirmed that I, I am very interested in, in doing these types of trips. More technical climbing at altitude is is super intriguing and I haven't done much of it. And, um, you know, even on the Logan trip, we, we didn't really get to climb our main objective. But I think just the process of, yeah, being in a place for, for an extended period of time and really just getting in tune with the landscape and your partners and, mm-hmm. and the other people around and, and kind of the communities around you. Um, I don't know that it just all adds to to the whole experience and you know we just we just spend you know whatever it is $20,000 in 7 weeks to go climbing for 4 days. So you better be into a whole lot of other things other than just going climbing um if you if you want to do this and do these trips and enjoy them I think and I think for both of us a big part of it is just being out there and experiencing kind of the whole gamut of um yeah things that are on offer in in a different part of the world. 
So that's that's super intriguing. And of course, you know, there's so many inspiring mountains uh, around the world that, um, yeah, we'd love to visit. Yeah, I think that sums it up really well. If if you just want to go climbing, maybe this kind of trip is is not the best way to do that. <laughs> um, which, frankly, I'm quite looking forward to in the next few months. Um, but yeah, I think this is this is probably not not the uh, the last hurrah for the two of us. And I think yeah, we're both pretty excited to to have more of these kinds kinds of experiences. And I think it's just such a such a gift in in the world and era that we live in and how connected we are all the time and distracted to really have the time and space to be so focused on 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 either the objective or really just the experience itself is how i think about it and so i really feel lucky and grateful to have those experiences and to have that time away from from everything else and i think it just makes for makes the rest of of my life back home also makes me appreciate it a lot more. So, so yeah. Well, I really appreciate you guys both taking this time and sharing a little bit of the backstory, a little bit of the behind the scenes on a trip like this. I mean, we often talk about, you know, the, uh, the great line and the, the grades and things like that, but really there's just so much more to it. And uh, it's, it's been great to hear your, your experience and your perspective on these things. So, so thanks. Yeah, thank you. Really, thank you to for setting this up and and kind of yeah, giving us the opportunity to to chat a little bit about that. I think um, yeah, this is exactly uh, the kind of information I would have been keen to to know about a little bit um, before embarking on a, a trip like this. Great. Yeah, and I think we're both pretty happy to to share more or connect with others if anyone has any additional questions or thoughts about about doing something like this for the first time. Okay. During this episode, Ethan and Martin mentioned their Mount Logan expedition, which they did in 2021. Their team of four climbed four long new routes on three mountains during six weeks in the Yukon's glacier wilderness. We'll post a link to Ethan's excellent AAJ report at the Cutting Edge website. If you want to follow up on Ethan and Martin's kind offer to answer questions from alpinists who aspire to lightweight independent expeditions in Nepal, Drop us a note at aaj at americanalpineclub.org. We'll hook you up. The Cutting Edge Podcast is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker, designer of comfortable and bomb-proof tents for all kinds of adventures. We get additional support from Polar Tech, Gnarly Nutrition, and Loa Boots. This podcast is produced by the American Alpine Club. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy holidays and happy climbs. <laughs>